0: Good morning. Good morning and the conversation begins here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. A coronavirus, it's everywhere and people, you're scaring me. With people more people out and about than ever without masks in the park on a beautiful day, you're putting the rest of us at risk. Please don't do that. But enough of that. When we come back in just a bit, Todd Tomczewski, he's the director of sports medicine for that team at the other end of the state, the Pittsburgh Pirates. And we're going to talk A, we're going to talk A, coronavirus, and B, what does it mean to the players? All this and more coming up here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit.
1: spring
0: hey we are? Where we alright I've gone through all the tracks just move through the beats do your thing alright everyone let's hear it for West High's own Brooke Turner aka DJ Hook scratching at my first school dance takes confidence <laughs> so we're getting into college I've got what it takes ok I went through the practice sessions I slept good I feel good we will now begin the test please take out your pencils <sighs> I got this. We're all good at something. Maybe it's
1: breakdancing or skateboarding or video games. Whatever you're good at, you have the skills to make it happen. And those same skills will help us get to college. Visit knowhowtogo.org to learn what you should be doing right now to prepare for college. Start taking the steps at knowhowtogo.org.
0: I've got what it takes. So do you.
1: Brought to you by the American Council on Education, Illumina Foundation, and the Ad Council.
0: And we're back, and it's coronavirus. It just seems not to want to go away, and people are getting a little itchy about the virus and wanting to be out and about. They feel they've given up a lot of things, and they want to say not much more. Well, one of the things they've given up for a lot of people is baseball. And we're going to talk with Todd Tomzuski, the medical director of sports medicine, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Good morning, Tom.
1: Good morning, Peter. How are you doing this morning? I'm fine.
0: What does a medical director do?
1: Well, I'm a certified athletic trainer. Uh, and my main role, uh, one of my main roles is to oversee the general uh, health, uh, physical and mental wellness of all our athletes in the organization.
0: Which has got to be difficult at best and even harder in this, the era of covid
1: boy I, I tell you what that's that's a um that's a statement that I, I don't think we can put words on right now um it's definitely a challenge you know at the at the very core of what i do as a as a certified athletic trainer um it, it's i I'm, I'm with i'm with athletes i'm with people impacting their lives um and, and during this time of sequestration it's it's definitely um just challenged that and and we we have to connect uh, with our players in in different ways and and, and impact their ways in many different ways. And that's one is not being with them, Uh, maintaining social distance, obviously. And um, just due to this pandemic, we're, we're just not allowed to be with them physically.
0: So how do you do it?
1: Great question. Um, You know, don't do it alone. I have a team of about uh, 13, 14 athletic trainers certified trainers throughout the organization. And uh, we brainstorm uh, all the time, probably multiple times a week as a staff. Uh, we collaborate with our coaching staff, with, with our manager, with our front office, uh, just to try to ways to connect uh, different ways to connect with players. For instance, uh, we're fortunate we're in the age of technology. Um, so whatever, whatever venue we have via Skype, FaceTime, Zoom, um, we're, we're calling the players. We're, we're actually seeing them perform their workouts, watching them do their baseball activities, and we're having fun doing it. Although it's frustrating at times, uh, it's fun to learn what these guys are, are doing in this time, how creative they can be with, with the sometimes limited resources they have to actually train uh, or perform specific baseball work.
0: Where do they do it, though? In their backyards?
1: Uh, backyards, home. Um, they, they, they've sometimes find local parks that, that they see no one's there. Um, um, but these guys are very private in themselves, um, so, so they like to keep themselves at times. Um, but they, primarily it's been in their backyards and in their garages and in their basements.
0: What about spouses and children?
1: Great question, Peter. Um, <laughs> I, I've seen videos of, of parents I've seen videos of mothers, grandmothers, children, spouses playing catch with them, uh, putting the balls on tees. Um, they're 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 assisting. It, it's been a collaborative approach. Uh, now that's that's a great question to bring up with, with spouses and, and children because as the season goes on, they're they're without their families for a long period of of time. So that can pose a different stressor uh, for the players and for the families. The the wives that aren't used to their 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 husbands and being around that much so it's it's a unique balance in, in during this time
0: and marriage you for better or for worse not for 24 hours a day
1: <laughs> no question uh we're, we're hoping and in most cases that this is the the case that it, it's strengthening their relationships it's it's allowing it to take a step back and and enjoy that family time that that for most of the season because of the demands of the game uh, takes away that that family time
0: well do you see a season coming
1: i i'm an internal optimist Uh, i truly believe that we will have um, some type some type of baseball season now that's my that's my opinion that's my gut i'm confident in in the leaders of the industry i'm confident leaders of our organization that um, confident in the leaders of, of, of the world that when this is deemed safe and when this is, is deemed appropriate, uh, we will resume some type of
0: baseball season. But before we went into sequestration, people were in the locker room, everything from uniforms to the all together, exposing each other to Lord knows what, because we think COVID- coronavirus may have started before we knew it started.
1: Yeah, I, not to, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not an epidemiology or infectious disease doctor. Um, but, but what I can tell you, what I've learned through this is that the coronavirus, not this particular strand of COVID-19 has been around for a long time, a long time. And this is, unfortunately, this strain is, is impacting lives um, that, that, in ways that medical experts couldn't, couldn't imagine. And I think that's why we're in this predicament that we are. Um, And that's why once it's deemed safe, once we can get uh, a grasp on the strategies and tactics on how we can um, manage this and control this, there's going to be life in the clubhouse is going to be different, Uh, not only for us as certified ethic trainers, for for players, but um, um, for media such as yourself, for anybody that steps foot, Around the world, it, it, it's just going to be a different time, and, and I'm I'm hopeful and I'm confident that that will, it'll be better.
0: How do you train though when you don't have equipment? All you have is a bat and a ball. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, I, I learned I learned a long time ago, um, you know, from my from my dad actually. Um, the greatest asset you, you you can use is your ears and your eyes, right? So you you really you, it, takes, uh, it allows you to take a step back. It, it allows you to assess or survey the area, right? And, and it allows you to see what you have. Um, back in the day, we didn't have all these, these luxurious performance centers and weight rooms that um, the, the owners throughout the league have afforded to us uh, as medical staffs and players to train with. Uh, But really getting back to the roots of just allowing your body to move with its own body weight, whether it's um, getting big 10 or 5-gallon jugs of of water and doing good old farmer carries and holds and and just getting stretch bands uh, and just being really in tune with your body and and what it can and can't do uh, and finding bags of potting soil. um, If you're into building your own vegetables and putting it over your head, uh, let alone just being creative and, and constructing your own tee. And now, fortunately, Peter, a lot of these players uh, have had some type of equipment in their homes already. Um, but but I will tell you our our players overseas, internationally, that have gone um, to the Dominican, uh, that have gone to Puerto Rico, um, it, it's been fun to watch them work outside and really re-engage, re-engage with the earth and re-engage with the dirt. Uh, and just get creative and, and keep their bodies going.
0: And you're listening to conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Tom Todd. My tongue's not working. I apologize, Tom Todd no Tomczuky, Athletic Director Sports of Sports Medicine for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Tom gonna run a few commercials. We'll be back in just a bit. Just say play conversation here on ninety four WIP, as I get my guest Peter Solomon is Todd Tomzuski, director of sports medicine for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Todd, how hard is it to get these guys to behave and do what they got to do to battle Corona? Do they wear masks? Do they wash their hands every seven minutes or so? That's
1: a great question, Peter. <clears throat> we had the, the that's a million dollar question. Actually, we get if they could we. They would do what we asked them during during regular times versus pandemic, uh, we'd be in a lot better place. But but in all seriousness, it, it, they do. Um, I, I have seen numerous. I can't speak for everybody, um, all of our players, but for the most of them, for the majority, they are taking the universal precautions. They are wearing masks. They are washing their hands frequently. Uh, but, you know, they're cleaning. Uh, they're cleaning their surfaces regularly. They're maintaining social distance. Um, I know one thing about professional athletes, and I know one thing about the athletes I have the opportunity to work with. They take this serious. Uh, this is a very serious uh, world health matter, um, and they want to be part of the solution, not the problem.
0: How do they see themselves doing that other than behaving?
1: <laughs> uh, getting out there, uh, supporting the frontline uh, defenders, supporting the doctors, the nurses. Um, just as you mentioned, Peter. Uh, doing the little things that they can do to give back to the community. Um, uh, Some of our major league players um, through their generosity and gratitude have been providing meals for local hospitals here uh, in the Western Pennsylvania area. Uh, Some, some players that are down in Florida, some players in their home in their home States, uh, they're really trying as they always do uh, whether we're in a pandemic or out of pandemic, they give back to the community and it's, and its it, I find myself very fortunate to, to work with, with such individuals.
0: Now, you mentioned you're in western Pennsylvania. Obviously, Pittsburgh is where the team is. How yes. is that area of the state coping with coronavirus?
1: You know, I, I got to tell you, uh, we're fortunate um, being in western PA, being in Pittsburgh. Uh, it, according to some of the models and in speaking to our health experts uh, here in Allegheny County, um, it, we have not been hit um, as as hard as it was projected. Um, it, the as you know, Pittsburgh is such a widespread city. We don't have a lot of mass transportation, and a lot of people live in the suburbs. So uh, we kind of live uh, in, in a social distance way as it as it begins. Um, but with that said, the government officials here, um, our local health experts have have been on top of this and, and speaking with. The folks out your way. I think that the collaboration, uh, the 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 community as a Pennsylvania as a whole has really come together and, and and tried to fight this and and uh, um, head this off at the at, the, at the forefront.
0: How do you see the game changing?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, I've I've seen a, as probably you have a ton of ideas out there from. Uh, from robot umpires to um, to wearing masks to cleaning baseballs between every pitch. And um, um, unfortunately, it, it may require initially um, playing without fans um, live. Now, the fans, I'm sure, uh, will be able to, to view our games. But again, these are all plans. These are all ideas. Um, but but I, I do get the sense, when we do play baseball again, uh, it, it could get back to the roots. It could get back to the authenticity, and it could get back to this, this true camaraderie of of competition, and, and really and really understanding that the genuinity of the game and, and the intricacies of the game really really tune into. Um, I, I I believe it, it could be a springboard uh, to to a new. To a new generation of baseball players, uh, to, to reach out to these young athletes and to really get into the basics of what baseball is really all about.
0: But playing the game without an audience, one of the things you mentioned, really is going to hit the teams in the pocketbook, isn't it?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I, I think it already has. I, I mean, I, I think we all can we all can say that the, the world economy is upside down, and not, notably, our industry, and it'll be our city. Uh, absolutely it will and it's going to take a number of years to to come back Um, maybe more than a number of years Um, but but I'm I'm confident that uh, we as an industry, we as the players um, will look for different ways uh, to generate revenue without fans initially until the health experts deem it safe for um, community gatherings larger than 50 people Um, uh, whether it's video gaming, whether it's I think you've seen numerous players throughout the league participating in MLB The Show competition, which I think is really cool. Um, I, I think there's just going to be so many other ideas that we're not even mentioning this morning and, and people don't, <clears throat> haven't even put out in the general public. Um, but I believe in times of crisis such, such as these, um, some of the greatest ideas are inspired, uh, and, then, and then they come out and, and turn out to be home runs.
0: From your lips to the baseball guy's ears, but that's another discussion. Uh, (laughs) Absolutely. The mental health of players. I mean, you work and you slave and you exercise and you sacrifice, and then you get on a team if you're lucky, and then along comes coronavirus, and you're back in your garage. How do they cope? Yeah,
1: that's a great question, Peter. Uh, I'm really glad you you brought up the, the whole mental health aspect of this, because there's there's mental performance, and then, and then there's mental health. Um, and when you think about mental health, it's a personal um, and 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 subjective, right? It's a it's a sense of internal well-being. Um, it's it's a feeling in line with you know the the, the player's own values and beliefs, right? Of who they are, uh, and this this arena of baseball, um, the, these elite athletes, it they feel at peace with themselves. When they're in that arena, and uh, when they're outside of that arena, giving back to the community, and and that that feels that that turns into a feeling of, of being positive and optimistic about life. Um, so, with these elite athletes, there's usually an end game, right? If if you're a runner, you know the start line, and and you know when the where the finish line is. Unfortunately, these great unknowns, um, there is no finish line. So constantly fortunately now, Peter, I get the opportunity to work with some of the, the most intrinsically motivated individuals in the world, right? Um, but that said, they, they have an end game in mind. So keeping these gentlemen engaged with a, a unknown, with a hypothetical right now of what that end game is, when the start is, um, is, is the biggest challenge. And uh, h- helping them be aware, um, be aware of what's going on. Um, helping them just accommodate through this time, giving them different, um, different skill sets with our mental performance team, for instance, with the Pittsburgh Pirates. And then obviously, you know, you offer them assistance through, the, through it. How can they dive into different um, mindfulness training? And then finally, just, just general access to resources.
0: Well, but do you ever find a player who's finding trying to find peace at the bottom of a bottle or in a pill?
1: Unfortunately, we do. Uh, we do, and that that's a very, very, very real um, real problem, not only with with professional athletes but the world, right? Um, and that's where we have to utilize all our resources, our Eap. I personally. Uh, with a number of colleagues who have um, become a mental health first aider uh, through the National Behavioral Council over the past couple years, this has allowed me uh, to connect with our players in a much deeper way. It's allowed me to, to see signs and symptoms uh, for, for, the, for the things that you've just mentioned, that, that they can go down in that rabbit hole. Um, and it, it's, it's very real. It's in every one of us what triggers it is in times of crisis what triggers it is in times of sequestration and isolation the very time that we're in so being engaged with that athlete being engaged with that player uh, knowing what makes them tick um, having conversations with their family members having conversations uh, with their friends because not all these guys uh, are married Uh, some some of them most not all but some of them live by themselves uh, so staying engaged, staying engaged in the moment, and and providing that that awareness and support is crucial in this
0: time. Absolutely. How do you think coronavirus is going to change how we train athletic trainers?
1: A great, another great question, Peter. I, I think you know when when you see the the root of athletic trainers, it, it, we're in the service industry, right? Um, we we provide the, the healthcare. Uh, for for athletes, for active adults, for active children, I think this will just be another uh, uh, tool in the tool belt of certified athletic trainers um, that that need to take a deeper look at the whole uh, psychological aspect um, of mental health. I think this will also um, we we are great educators. I, I firmly believe as certified athletic trainers. Uh, we get asked, we have the front line conversations with our athletes, with our parents, whether it's youth, whether it's collegiate, whether it's professional, uh, we get asked a lot of questions. Uh, so, so we need to be versed in so many different areas in so many different ways. And COVID-19 is just another constant reminder of how we all need to continue to continue to evolve as certified athletic trainers, be up to date in, in the latest infectious disease uh, strategies, uh, be up to date in the latest um, cleaning uh, products uh, and, and how we can keep the environment and the players safe.
0: I would imagine, though, with sequestration, it's you, any family you have, and your computer. And that's it.
1: That's correct. Uh, I'm fortunate to have a, um, a, a rock star for, for a spouse and, and, and two beautiful kids and, and, and the the homeschooling, as I, I I keep hearing this referred to, I, I I laugh because when when and God bless the, the parents that do homeschooling. Um, I'm not one of them. I think this is school at home, right? Um, and, and without my wife who who does the homeschooling of her young children, or the schooling at home, I should say, um, I, I find myself just to try to stay out of the way. I'm more the PE teacher, um, and, and yes, I, I have I have the outdoors. Uh, we rain or shine, um, we like to get outdoors. Uh, we, we like to go ride bikes. Uh, I'm an avid runner. Um, I, I try to uh, limit the computer and limit the media at times. Um, no offense, Peter, uh, but it, it it kind of uh, gives me in a in a certain um, calm way uh, to really engage with 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 my present self and my family. Um, You know, if you speak to my wife, I'm on the computer and phone now more than ever when I was uh, with physical contact and in work. Um, But it's been it's been refreshing to to reengage in the family.
0: Well, you talk about the media. Sometimes I'm beginning to think it's all COVID all the time when the media, especially the electronic media. I know,
1: I know. I'm I'm sure that like uh like Philly, Western PA was in Pittsburgh specifically was excited about uh the NFL draft. So that that was a um a different way to uh to watch media, to watch TV and 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 not have to talk about COVID-19 for for a brief for a brief time.
0: Amen to that certainly. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon, more in just a bit. And we're back, it's conversation, our conversation this morning with Tom Tomczewski, Medical Director of Sports Medicine for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And we're talking COVID-19 and the athletics. My name's Peter Solomon. Okay. Todd, how did you become an athletic trainer?
1: Why did I become an athletic trainer?
0: Both why and
1: how? So, so why? I would say back in high school, um, thanks for asking. Not, not a lot of people ask that question, I've thought about that a, a lot. Um, back in high school, I loved sports, um, was an average athlete at best, and, and had this knack for helping people. And uh, one, one way you can help people is through medicine. Um, so I, I really found a, a passion uh, that that really uh, cleansed the palate for both being athletic, being in the sports world, and helping people. Um, and I knew from a very young age I wanted to do both, uh, but I wasn't sure whether it was being a physician or being a certified athletic trainer. Um, and as I uh, gravitated towards college and, and, the, and the higher education, um, I had my certified athletic trainer in high school. His name was Tony Sanks. Um, um, and, and I just admired what he did and how he did it and his, his servant leadership and his compassion for helping um, people, um, helping educate families, educate athletes. Um, and he was an avid runner. He was an avid um, athlete himself, uh, more than just a weekend warrior. And, and I just knew when I got into to university that, that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to to fall into a to a really good program um, that that allowed me to um, gain the knowledge of a certifi- certified athletic trainer uh, to get get out in the real world and give back.
0: All right. One day in the future, one of your kids comes to you and says, "Dad, I want to be an athletic trainer." What would you say?
1: I would say, "Okay. Why?" <laughs> I would say, "And and how can I help you aspire?" Um, and, and help you uh, follow those goals and follow those dreams. Uh, it, it's funny. I do have little ki- We have little kids, and we drive by uh, the highway, and, oh, there, there's where daddy works. It's PNC Park. There's where daddy works. And, and for the longest time, they, they thought I played, and, and I had to stop them very quickly and and, and redirect the, the mindset because I, I do not play. Uh, but, but as they're getting older and as they're growing, um, they're always asking for, hey, where's the – where's the band-aids and and can i can i help um can i help um tape 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 my sister's ankle or tape their their little band, their bruise on their elbow um but if that's the way uh, our kids want to go i will, will fully support it um and we'll help along that that journey and that path
0: you don't play but would you like to play
1: professionally of course, that was always a dream. Uh, it was always a childhood dream of mine to, to get into the big leagues. Um, Don Mattingly probably was my favorite player growing up. Um, being in Pittsburgh, Roberto Clemente is my favorite Pirate um, growing up. But uh, yeah, that was that was the, that was the dream. Um, but you know, life life comes with many twists and turns, and um, I recognize my limitations as a as an athlete and as a baseball player, and. Um, By a lot of luck um, and 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 some good good grace there, I was I was fortunate to end up in the big leagues in a different
0: way. Now you're also um, adjunct faculty at Duquesne. That's correct. Yes. What do you teach? So
1: uh, once or twice uh, throughout the semester, um, I have the opportunity to 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 give back again and and teach to the to the freshmen. the sophomores, juniors, and seniors, um, kind of some nuggets of, of my path. Uh, I have a, a, a course titled um, Impacting the Lives of the 21st Century Athlete, and, and it kind of just gives them a broad scope of, of what they're going to deal with when they get out in, in the quote-unquote real world of, of, of dealing with real challenges. And, and just because I'm very fortunate to work uh, in professional baseball, um, that is the, the minority of where athletic trainers work. Um, but I, I did start out working in a, in a high school and worked uh, briefly in, in some, um, some physical therapy clinics. So having, giving them the broad scope, the broad spectrum of what to expect and how to deal with the, the challenges of our 21st athlete is the primary uh, focus of the, of the courses.
0: Now, your resume says that for many years you worked in minor league teams right
1: yes that that's uh that that humbled me it, it grew me up a lot um i was 21 years old um I had no idea what i was doing out of college um and i, I had an opportunity to work um, with the cleveland in the cleveland indians or- organization in burlington north carolina um and that is the the appalachian league um and it brought back memories we we actually drove back from 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 Florida Florida, spring training, and our route drove past some of those cities, Um, the Johnson City, uh, Virginia, uh, the Bristol, uh, Virginia, um, Princeton, West Virginia, all these cities in the Appalachian League where I got my start. um, It it taught you how to to really survive. It taught you uh, back then in, in professional baseball as the athletic trainer, um, you were the traveling secretary, you were the strength coach, uh, you were the mom, the dad, the uncle, the, the interpreter. There was the manager, there was the pitching coach, there was the hitting coach, and there was a certified athletic trainer. So it, it grew me up really fast. Um, being 21 at the time, half the team was older than me, half the team spoke a different language than me. Um, so it, it really it ignited how I, I spoke Spanglish. <laughs> um but the minor leagues, eight years, it, it, was, it was a great experience.
0: How do you think, then, COVID-19 is impacting the minor leagues?
1: Boy, that's a great question, Peter, as well. I, unfortunately, I think it's, it's probably going to impact them a little bit initially greater than, uh, than, than the major leagues. Um, just, just for the simple fact of, of, of the economics of the situation, um, we're now almost into May, uh, one month in, into the season. Granted, minor league starts a little bit, little bit slower, um, but some of those cities, the cities I mentioned, rely on that summer baseball um, to support their communities. And uh, I just I hope and pray that, that, the, that the local uh, authorities and the governments in those cities can, can figure out some different ways to, to generate revenue while, while baseball potentially may not be, be going on this summer in those cities.
0: What do you say then to fans who understand COVID-19, but at the same time are getting cranky, want to come out of the house and go watch some baseball?
1: I know, I know. And and, and it's it's not one answer. Um, uh, If you're a true fan of the game, uh, stay with it. If you're if you're uh, have that passion that I, I sense that you do for the game that 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 I know I do for the game, it's going to be back. It's going to be back in in some shape, way or form. Um, they're starting to play in in other countries, which I which I I view as a sign of optimism, albeit uh, without fans. But it, it's being viewed uh, on on the media and on on the TV. So. Um, You can only watch so many reruns of professional sports games uh, in your favorite team, Um, but go out and play. Go out and move. Be active if if you can. Um, Engage in the sport in any little way that you can in your your community, albeit social distancing with your family and friends, but try to to recreate that in, in the backyard or in the alleyways.
0: What's the hardest thing been for you, Todd? With COVID nineteen, hard thing to do to cope with.
1: Another great question. I, I think just being away from everybody, the the, the isolation. The, I know we've mentioned this this word a number of times uh, through this really really cool talk. Is is the, the sequestration and, and being being away from people that you know by the one on one interaction that how you can impact their lives um, and. and the, the camaraderie that, that comes with, with being part of a, a community, something that's bigger than yourself. Um, and, and, that, and that is a challenge for all. That, that's been unfortunately paused. It hasn't been taken away. Uh, I, I view it as we're, we're in a time of we're, just, we're, we're taking a pause and, and, and we're recalibrating, if you must. Um, and I know this is an internal optimist, but but we're going to come back stronger.
0: I sincerely hope so. One last commercial break there, Todd Tomczewski. We'll be back in just a bit. Yes, indeed. Not washing your hands is stupid. Go wash them. And then come back here as we talk to Todd Tomczewski, Director of Sports Medicine for the Pittsburgh Pirates. My name's Peter Solomon. It's conversation. Todd, ever thought about writing a book?
1: Yes, I have. And? (laughs) it's interesting, you know, um, I, 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 it, it definitely triggers a different side of the brain (laughs) to, to get, uh, to get some information out of it. Um, but it's definitely a unique unique experience.
0: Well, but would you do a technical book for future athletic trainers, or would you do something a little bit more anecdotal?
1: You know, I, I think it would be a combination of combination of both. I think it would be interactive. I think uh, I, I believe I'm more of i um, I'm a more of a visual learner. So that would be a preference than an auditory. Uh, but I think it would be a combination of both. It's a great question, Peter.
0: Yeah, I try. Um, <laughs> have I missed anything that we should make sure we touch?
1: Um, no, I mean, this has been a, a really great conversation. I, 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 I just really want to, Emphasize, and I, I really appreciate you bringing this up. The whole mental, the mental health of this—it's—it's it, challenging, just not for professional athletes, but for all of us, for our families, um, and, and as as human beings, as humanity, as certified athletic trainers. I, I think that's that's kind of gets down to the very fabric that that we what we're really all about. Um, and I'm fortunate to be part of. Uh, of a great society, the Professional Baseball Athletic Trainer Society, and that that really serves as an educational resource to to reach out to reach out to the masses and 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 share messages such as this in these in these in these times of crisis.
0: What do your owners think about all the things that are going on?
1: Yeah, I can I can speak to to mine and and uh, he he's a he's a servant leader um he, he's he's really concerned about um his people his employees um first and foremost he's 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 concerned about our families he's concerned about um how we're doing in these times and um i, I know he's doing any and everything mr nutting is doing any and everything to to, to keep everything afloat and, and every everybody whole uh, at this time but there there's some very challenging challenging times um, I know he wants to have some type of season this year, uh, to give back to the community, um, to, to, make sure we can continue to, to, um, see that sparkle in people's eyes when baseball is played, albeit whether it's a PNC park or a citizens b- b- ballpark, um, or some remote location that, that we all decide. Um, but I, I know that our owner wants baseball back.
0: And I can also imagine it not only impacts the team and the owner, but it with no season with an audience, the hot dog vendor, the soda vendor, the program seller, the merchandiser, all that stuff. All oh, to, the, to, the, to the
1: men and women alike, to the custodians that, that are there late night, uh, making sure that, that the stadium and the offices are, are clean. Absolutely. I mean, this is in, impacting lives. That, uh, that to the jobs that you just mentioned that, that a lot, not a lot of people think about, you know, we talked about players, we talked about families, but those are real jobs. Those are the jobs that keep the the, the place running. Uh, when all fans aren't there, they're the ones that keep it uh, um, spotless when the fans return. And uh, yeah, it's, it's sad. It's, it's, it's impacting those, those men and women's lives and, um, and uh, un- unfortunately they're, they're not going to be able probably to do that in any, in any in near time future.
0: I would also imagine Mrs. Kamziewski, who as much as she loves you and their children would like to get her house back.
1: Oh, absolutely. We have that conversation frequently. Uh, as-, as I mentioned, my, my wife's a rock star. I mean, she, um, she keeps, she's the pillar. Um, she's the foundation of this family. And, I I try not to uh, mess it up too much and I try to stay away because she has it rocking and rolling with or without me. Um, And and sometimes, more often than not, I get in the way.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Spoken like a husband. (laughs) And I'd like to say thank you to Todd Tomzuski, Director of Sports Medicine for the Pittsburgh Pirates, to Mrs. Tomzuski, and to all the people out there battling COVID 19. Thank you, sir.
1: Thank you, Peter. Be safe,
0: everyone. You too. And remember, wash your hands. And you're listening to 94 WIP, All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. And folks, I'm going to say it one more time before we move on into WIP Sunday. And that is, you're scaring me. States around the country are talking about opening up. Maybe opening up with some rationale, but opening up. And opening up opens up, up to new infections new hospitalizations, new death. Please think about what you're doing, and if you have to be out there, wear a mask six feet apart and only do it when you absolutely have to. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. If you can't, nothing left to say, but talk with you soon. As we ease on out of conversation and ease on into WIP Sunday, my name's Peter Solomon, and it's going to be a nice WIP Sunday, no matter where you go. And I'm pleased to welcome here for some good conversation, author Tom Clavin, his new book, Tombstone The Earp Brothers, Doc Holiday, and the Vendetta Ride from Hell. Tom, when we think of Tombstone, we tend to think of Hugh O'Brien as White Herb and Gene Barry and Bat Masterson, you're painting a very different picture in Tombstone, aren't you?
2: Well, you know, these obviously people like Wyatt Earp and 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 Bat, Bat Masterson and Doc Holliday have become, you know, legends. They're they're people of, of myths. Uh, and but what I wanted to do with this book is show that they were really flesh and blood characters. That they were, uh, they had their frailties, they had their faults, uh, but they also. Uh, the gunfight at the O.K. Corral, they were basically uh, put in a position reluctantly of being the good guys who were defending law and order in Tombstone.
0: Take <clears throat> us back to Tombstone in the 1870s, please. Well, Tombstone
2: basically uh, uh, developed overnight. Uh, a man named Ed Sheeflin, who was a prospector, uh, he believed uh, that in the mountains there of southeast Arizona that there was uh, uh, silver, uh, maybe gold, but but silver. And uh, the, the, the name Tombstone came about because the soldiers in the nearby fort used to kid him that uh, the only thing you'll find out there is your tombstone, meaning that uh, he's either going to die of thirst or starvation or the Indians would get him. But lo and behold, he actually found silver, uh, lots of it. And uh, overnight, uh, a town that he named Tombstone sprang up. And this was only in 1877 that he, he discovered the gold. By, by 1881, when the gunfight at the O.K. Corral occurred, uh, Tombstone was a place that was uh, really quite sophisticated. They they built themselves as the San Francisco of the Southwest. I mean, you could go to Italian restaurants and and, and French restaurants, and there were nice hotels and uh, theater theater companies would come and perform performances of Gilbert and Sullivan operas. So it was it was a place where uh, it thought it saw itself on the cutting edge of the of the frontier.
0: Again, common legend would have Tombstone being dusty, dirty. Horse leavings in the street, and ladies of the evening walking the sidewalk. Yeah,
2: you know it's a good point. They, that's it, it, it's often portrayed as as yes, a place that's very uh, uh, maybe rustic is even too nice a word. I mean, it, it still had its its uh, its its wild west aspects to it. I mean, uh, for example, everything everything had been built. Most everything had been made of wood. That's why the town was burned down twice. Uh, and you did have some conditions where, yes, in, in the depth of summer, when you had the temperature at 100 degrees, you'd have these, these dusty streets. and, and, and uh, uh, But, but it was, Tombstone really did see itself as a sophisticated, progressive city. And, and it, it pretty much was, uh, it was. It was a place where the idea that there might be a gunfight there was a, sho- a shock to the citizens. They saw themselves as a 20th century town.
0: All right. What brought wider Doc Holliday and the other gentlemen there?
2: Wyatt Earp, Tombstone represented opportunity. Uh he uh and his brothers, there were actually five earth brothers who who reunited in Tombstone, uh Wyatt, Virgil, Morgan, Warren, and James. And their idea was that they would uh be like this, this this strength of numbers of family and they were going to invest in the silver mines uh that were, you know, making some people rich and they would finally Find their you know way to, to riches, and uh, so that's what that's what brought them there. They did not go there because they were saying, "Oh, let's let's go be sheriffs and marshals and clean up the town." They they didn't care about that. They just wanted to make some money. And uh, Doc Holliday ended up in Tombstone because uh, because Wyatt was there. Uh, you know, Doc Holliday ended up in Dodge City because Wyatt was there, and and then uh, Wyatt, like I said, reunited with his brothers in Tombstone, and Doc Holliday and his girlfriend, Big Nose Kate. Uh, we're wandering around again in the south southwest and they said well let 's go to tombstone because why it 's there, and at least we know somebody and that 's what brought doc Holliday there and uh, I should point out Bat Masterson was there for a time too and and he would have uh, probably been part of the gunfight at the ok Corral except his own brother back in Dodge city uh was the marshal was he got a telegram saying uh they 're out gunning for your brother, come quick, which he did, and, and he actually did. Uh, arrive in time to save his brother's life, but if not for that, he would also have been in Tombstone at that pivotal time.
0: Well, now, let me ask about a rumor about Doc Holliday. His favorite place to be was at the bottom of a bottle.
2: Yeah, but Doc enjoyed his... Uh, I, I Enjoy is not the right word. I mean, Doc was somebody who, who uh, definitely uh, who had a problem with alcohol, and, you know, he, Doc was not the most uh, uh, courteous and, and tactful and pleasant person to begin with, and the alcohol only made it worse. Uh, you know, really, wider was the only friend Doc Holliday had, other than his girlfriend, you know, Kate Elder. Uh, so, so Doc, the funny thing about Doc too is that he was somebody that that uh, because he had a hair-trigger temper, and, and you know, alcohol made it worse, would get involved sometimes in gunfights, um, but oftentimes they didn't result in anybody getting killed because Doc was such a bad shot; he was <laughs> terrible. With a with a pistol, uh, at the gunfight at the OK Corral, he was the only one with a shotgun because that's the only thing, only time, only way you might have hit somebody.
0: Now, what was the gunfight at the OK Corral all about? Well, you know, you had in
2: Tombstone there was really a friction be going on between the old Wild West ways represented by the cowboys and the ranchers who were kind of corrupt, you know, doing a lot of horse and cattle stealing, and they they didn't want law and order in Tombstone because that would that would interfere with their way of doing things. And they had been doing things that way for several years. And then you had the people of Tombstone that uh, wanted it to be a a place where you could raise families, you could build churches and schools, and it would be a peaceful place. And um, the the law and order faction basically ended up being represented by the Earps. They didn't want to. But they, they sort of fell into it because the people who were elected sheriff and, and, and other marshals there just didn't want to do their job. They were, they were intimidated or scared by the cowboys. So it, it, the OK Corral gunfight, which took place on October 26, 1881, was that, uh, that clash between the, the Clantons and, and the, the McLowry brothers, who were the ranchers and cowboys, and the Earps, who represent, and Doc Holliday, who represented uh, law and order. And so it was really the Old West versus the New West that took place that day.
0: Now, who were the Clanton boys?
2: Uh, Ike and Billy Clanton were, were two of uh, four Clanton brothers, uh, and uh, they were ranchers. And they, uh, Ike was also somebody. He was he was sort of like a Doc Holliday in the sense that he was not a very well-liked person, and he had alcohol was a contributing factor to him getting in trouble. And uh, he sort of precipitated that fight because he was going around Tombstone saying, that he was going to get the herbs, he was finally going to get rid of them, and then Tombstone could be the the Wild West town that that it always was before. And uh, and and so the, the reason, and the McLowrys were ranchers who were friends of the Clintons. That when when the word got around that uh, Virgil Earp was coming to arrest Ike Clinton, Ike and Billy and the McLowry brothers basically said, "Well, we're going to make a stand here, not actually at the OK Corral, but in a vacant lot that was a, that was a block away from it." And, uh, and that's, so that's how the McLowry's and the Clans ended up in that vacant lot. And then Virgil, knowing he needed to deputize somebody, he decided to deputize his brothers, Wyatt and Morgan. And then at the last minute, Doc Holliday said, well, wait a minute, what about me? You know, if, if Wyatt's going to risk his life, I'm going to risk it too. So that's how it ended up. You had the McLowry brothers, the Clanton brothers against the Earp brothers and Doc Holliday.
0: Now, how did Virgil get to be the one in charge mm-hmm. when Wyatt got all the publicity?
2: You know, it's a good question, because that is true, that we always think, and, and a lot of times in movies, Wyatt is portrayed as the marshal or the sheriff or the, the lead guy. But uh, but again, Wyatt was in Tombstone not to be a lawman, but because he wanted to make money with his brothers. Uh, Virgil was, uh, uh, he he had been marshal for a short time in Tombstone. There was an election. Somebody else got elected, so Virgil said, fine, you could be marshal." And then the guy who got elected marshal left town. He, <laughs> he, Smart man. He, he, he was scared. He, he said, "Wait a minute! I didn't know I'd have to take on these cowboys and these ranchers." And uh, I've got an errand to run. And he basically took a train out of Tombstone. And never, never was seen again. So they went back there to Virgil and said, "Well, here, could you be marshal again? Because you're the only guy that we could we could we could count on. It's not going to leave town." So that's how Virgil ended up being marshal. And and let's face it, the, the the silver mines that the Earp brothers had invested in were not doing that well. So uh, Virgil, uh, who's married, he he wanted the paycheck. I mean, being a marshal didn't pay a lot of money, but it, it was a paycheck.
0: Amen to that. Um, who won the OK Corral?
2: <clears throat> well,
0: if there was he, a winner,
2: yeah, I mean, you would say the Earp brothers were. It was it was a lot of times too the OK Corral gunfight is portrayed as this long drawn out battle, but one of the things that I wanted to convey in the book is that it was really a pretty intense brief battle. I mean, it was it was these, these four men versus four men facing each other in a pretty small uh, vacant lot. They were only like 15 feet apart from each other. And in only 30 seconds, there were 30 shots fired. That's a pretty intense firefight that took place. And at the end of it, three men were dead, uh, which would be Billy, Tom, and Frank McLowry. And three others were wounded, which would be Morgan and and Virgil Earp and Doc Holliday. Um, the the only person who who participated in the entire fight who was not wounded was Wyatt Earp. Ike Clanton, as soon as the gunshots started, he ran. He, he was the one that was uh, boasting how he was going to take care of the Earps, and once the gunfire took place, he took off. That's what saved his life. So you could say that the... Um, The forces of law and order won that fight and that the Clantons and the McLowrys were were defeated and the McLowrys and Billy Clanton were killed. But that wasn't the real end of it. That's an important part of the Tombstone story. That was not the end of the story. What happened was that uh, uh, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp were put on trial for murder, uh, and uh, they were eventually uh, acquitted. But that got the Cowboys upset, so they ambushed Virgil and shot him. And later they ambushed Morgan and shot and killed him. And that led to the vendetta ride where Wyatt and Doc saddled up, got a posse, and they tracked down the guys who had had shot his brothers. And that's an important part of the story because the the violence in Tombstone did not really end at the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. It ended when Wyatt Earp was done with his vendetta ride. Mm -mm
0: Mm-mm-mm. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. Now, Tom Clavin, got to run a few commercials. We'll be back in just a bit. Just Say Play 94 WIP, WIP Sunday, as we get a history lesson from author Tom Clavin, author of Tombstone, The Weird Brothers, Doc Holiday, and The Vendetta Ride from Hell. My name's Peter Solomon. Now, Tom, one of the things that I like about your book a lot is you not only talk about the guys, you talk about the women in their lives.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because... That's an important part of the story of the Earps, that they they had wives with them. Now, I use the term wives a little bit loosely because these were frontier marriages, which basically said, you know, people decided, okay, we're going to be together, and we're going to have this relationship, and we're going to consider each other and call each other man and wife. Whether they actually went in front of a preacher is another thing. But, uh, but in Tombstone, uh, Virgil and his wife, uh, Allie, uh, Wyatt had his wife Maddie, Morgan had his wife Louisa, uh, even Doc Holliday had it, he never referred to Kate, big Nose Kate Elder as his wife. I mean, she was a steady companion. So they, they were part of this, uh, basically, this herb compound that was set up in Tombstone to sort of protect each other and take care of each other. But because they were frontier wives, uh, they really weren't allowed into the mainstream Tombstone society because... Uh, you know, there were, there were women there who saw themselves as proper wives and here are these frontier wives. So, so their, their story is actually kind of a little bit kind of sad for the Earp women because they were ostracized and looked down upon uh, by other women in Tombstone. Yet it was their husbands, when push came to shove, who were defending the law and order faction of, of Tombstone.
0: Now, it's interesting you mentioned big Nose Kate Elder. I remember a movie, The Sons of Kate Elder. Yes. And it's the lady, as I remember, the lady who played Kate. It's quite lovely. Yes, and you know, Kate was
2: Kate Elder was uh, a, a really interesting character in that she was pro- probably uh, off and on in her younger life a prostitute. I mean, we, 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 first of all, women on the frontier were few and far between, and 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 not all of them were prostitutes, but many of them at one time or another did involve themselves in prostitution just as a way to survive. And, uh, you know, if they they hooked up with a man who was going to take care of him, great, then they didn't have to be what what was called a soiled dove anymore. And Kate Elder was in that category, but she she, uh, hooked up with Doc Holliday. And even though their relationship was very volatile, because they were both big drinkers and alcohol only was like the lighting of a match for them, uh, you know, Doc took care of her. So she went wherever Doc went. And uh, she she, you know, uh, Doc unfortunately died early, you know, early on. He was only in his 30s because of the lung disease. Uh, But Kate Elder was somebody, if I remember correctly, I think she passed away. She was 99. So Mm. she really spanned the Wild West and then well into the 20th century.
0: Now, having seen the picture you have of Kate and some of the other women in the book, their faces don't match the faces we've seen in the media.
2: No. Well, you know, if you're going to make a movie, uh, you, you want people you know, who are going to play these parts who are somewhat glamorous people. You know, uh, ironically, uh, in the case of Wyatt Earp, he was a, a rather handsome guy. And and uh, one of the movies that we're familiar with is a picture called Wyatt Earp in which Kevin Costner portrays Wyatt Earp, which was fairly close. I mean, Wyatt was considered a pretty, a fairly handsome guy. But uh, but yes, it, it, in the case it oftentimes in the movies, I mean, you've had Wire portrayed by Burt Lancaster. You've had uh, Doc Holliday portrayed by Kirk Douglas. You've had uh, in the movie Tombstone. You've had Dana Delaney plays uh, Wyatt's, who, who becomes Wyatt's next wife, who's Josephine Marcus. Dana Delaney, Delaney a very uh, attractive uh, actress, and, uh, you know, and probably more so than the, than the real Josephine Marcus. But, but, you know, that makes sense. It's, it's true all the time when you have something based on a true story that they will, will tend to glamorize it. That's, that's what a lot of people want from movies, entertainment, glamour.
0: All right. Why, did you get in, why and how did you get interested in Tombstone?
2: Well, it was because of this accidental trilogy basically. Uh I had done a book a few years ago called Dodge City, which was about the relationship between Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson when they were very young, only in their twenties and, and and Lawmen in Dodge City and taming Dodge City. And that book came out and you no know, knockwood was was very successful and so I did a book called Uh Wild Bill. Uh, to go back in time a little bit to show what uh, what the frontier uh, lawman was like right after the Civil War, and that book did well, so uh, my editor and I decided, well, we've got Wild Billy after the Civil War, we've got Wyatt and Bat in the 1870s, maybe we should finish this trilogy with Tombstone when you had the Earp brothers and Doc Holliday uh, in Tombstone in the early 1880s, because it's sort of like this frontier lawman trilogy. So it it seemed like uh, I had to complete the story, and plus I wanted to to tell the story about what was really happening in Tombstone instead of the, the parts that have been fictionalized in the movies especially. And it turns out what really happened was just as exciting, if not more so, than the embellishments and fictions that have been made about it.
0: Well, but that was well over 100 years ago that it happened. How do you research that? Is there much documentation? Thankfully,
2: there was, because when these frontier towns were being established, one of the first things that they did was establish newspapers. And Tombstone had two of them, had the epitaph and the nugget. And so you could go back uh, to the archives, thankfully that they exist still, to what was being reported literally on a daily basis of the happenings in Tombstones. And and you also had people, and I have some of them in, in my book, uh, like George Parsons and Clara Brown, who are uh, disciplined a journal and diary writers and, and educated, you know, curious people. So it really did help to go back to the original contemporaneous uh, material about what was happening on a daily basis in Tombstone because they were not there to to fictionalize things. They were not there to glamorize things. They were just recording what was happening. So that gave a lot of, I think, authenticity to the story.
0: Now I want to go back to the trial for a minute of Wyatt and Doc. Who brought charges?
2: Uh, Ike Clanton, who was was the survivor of that gunfight at the O.K. Corral, uh, uh, really kept pushing the... The local authorities to bring Wyatt and Doc, and actually should have been Virgil and Morgan too, but they were considered too badly wounded to stand trial, uh, up on charges of murder. Uh, You know, the story that started to circulate right away by the anti herp faction was that the ERPs had gunned down the McLowries and the Clantons in cold-blooded murder. So that's why there was a trial, and it was a, it was a very important one. It was it was actually more of a hearing to determine if Doc and and Wyatt would be sent to Tucson to stand trial for murder, and it took a month, you know, of, of testimony and evidence presented. It was a it was a rather uh, lengthy and important affair because, and the judge finally decided that the that Wyatt and his brothers and Doc were acting that uh, were acting as as duly appointed lawmen, so they were not, so they were acquitted of the charges. But if it had gone the other way, if the judge is, the man named S- well, Spicer, if he had gone the other way, then uh, the story would be very different. Uh, Wyatt and Doc may end up have been convicted of murder and spent the rest of their lives in jail. <laughs> Hello?
0: Hello? And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My guest, author Tom Clavin, his new book, Tombstone, The Earp Brothers, Doc Holiday, and the Vendetta Ride from Hell. All right. Was there a reaction from Mike Clanton to the not guilty verdict?
2: Uh, he thought he had the Earps finally cornered and, and ready to go off to prison and so he kept agitating and one of one of the things he did was uh, get a couple of uh, fellows with him and they ambushed Virgil uh it was a couple of months after the OK Corral fight but maimed him for life they didn't kill him but they maimed him for life and even that didn't seem to satisfy him because it was a, a couple of months after that that Wyatt and Morgan were were in a shooting pool uh in a in a local establishment and again uh there were there was an ambush and Morgan was killed so it was really Ike Clanton who was unable to really face Wyatt face to face, but but was a pretty uh, turned out to be pretty good as a back shooter. Uh, that that's what what uh, Wyatt said. Enough is enough. And then he and Doc and another brother Warren Earp uh, got a couple other fellows together, and they said we're going to track these guys down and who, who, who shot my brother, which they did, uh, including the the notorious cowboy Curly Bill Brocius. Who uh, Wyatt he had a confrontation. Curly Bill was killed. Uh, ironically, Ike uh, did survive even the Vendetta Ride, uh, but uh, but he was he was a rather miserable person who uh, was was due to be have a violent death anyway. When he finally met one a few years later,
0: part part chicken in his tree as well, running from the gunfight and never facing Wyatt man to man. Yes, and, and it makes
2: him you know an especially unsavory character. I mean, he was he was not a very likable person to begin with, but. But that when he would he would he was a big braggart and boasting about how that he would take care of the herbs and whenever that opportunity came along to do it face to face he'd cut and ran.
0: Amazing, chickens come in every ilk, I guess.
2: Yeah. <laughs> All kinds of feathers.
0: <laughs> All right, now, what happened after the not guilty verdict? Did he continue the battle?
2: In a way, the battle continued because of the uh, the ambush of Virgil and in the ambush of Morgan. And that's an important reason. Another reason why I wanted to write the book because, uh, you know, there there were one there were movies like My Darling Clementine by John Ford that some old movie buffs may be familiar with. The OK Corral gunfights, the end of the story in a lot of these movies. Even in the gunfight, the the, the movie, the gunfight of, of, of the OK Corral. But there was this whole other aspect to it with Wyatt Earp, which I think is the the reason that Wyatt Earp is such a legendary figure that we know today. It, it was, yes, he did participate in the gunfight at the O.K. Corral, but this, this quest he went on that he and Doc and Warren and a few other guys that supported Wyatt, that they, they, these, this hard riding they did through the south, southeast, southwest, looking for these killers and tracking them down and, and bringing them to, to their own kind of violent frontier justice, that kind of mythical quest, I think, is what made Wyatt up the legendary figure he is today.
0: When we say... Mythical frontier justice? Are we talking about guns?
2: Yes, I mean they they would they would they would track these guys down and shoot them, and it was and Wyatt Earp was not a gunfighter. You know, he's he's often lumped with like one of the most famous gunfighters of the American West uh he was not somebody that went around shooting people. He he actually tried to avoid violence whenever possible. So this was uncharacteristic for him, but he was pushed past the point. You know, with both his brothers being gunned down, and not being gunned down face to face, but in ambushes, that that he and Doc said, okay, you know, the the, the shackles were off, we're gonna track these guys down, find them and kill them, which they did.
0: Did the judge face any consequences? Well, the judge did
2: not. I mean he, he was there were there were threats issued against him uh, strangely enough, uh, Well Spicer, uh, who's one of the interesting, you know, supporting characters in the book, he uh, after a time gave up uh, being a judge and uh, and uh, decided that he was be a prospector, and uh, he went off to prospect and was never heard from again.
0: Wonder where his bones are.
2: Well, well, someday they'll be found, but uh, they, they haven't been so far in 140 years.
0: What's next for the book and the story? Anything?
2: Well. I'm done with the Frontier Lawmen trilogy. I think it stands uh, by itself with, with Wild Bill, Dodge City, and now Tombstone. And uh, I may return to the, to the American West probably another, another time. But uh, right now, uh, the, the most recent book that I finished is with my friend Bob Drury, and it's about Daniel Boone and the American Revolution. So I will be back in history again, but a different time and a different place and a different character.
0: We also covered Daniel's Ladies. Well, he, he, he Daniel Boone had uh, his wife, Rebecca. He and Rebecca were
2: married for something like 50-something years, and they had nine or ten children. And uh, I, I, he, he may have had other liaisons, but as far as we know, Daniel was a pretty faithful husband. Well, you know, he was, he, was, he was on the blazing a trail in the wilderness. There weren't too many ladies
0: out there. <laughs> or so we think. But yeah. okay, that's another story.
2: Yeah, what? there's another aspect to it. Maybe we'll find that out later.
0: What's next for you, though? Obviously, Daniel Boone has to hit the publisher. What after that?
2: Uh, I'm working on a book, a World War II story. And uh, it's about this American farm boy who, when the war broke out, uh, joined the Army, became a pilot. Uh, he was, uh, after, like, on his 40th mission, he was shot down over France. And he ended up not in a POW camp, which is where he should have ended up in, but in the concentration camp Buchenwald. And it's about his story of survival in a concentration camp. It's, it's a really remarkable story that it, uh, uh, it turns out he was one of about 100 American airmen who had sent not to a POW camp but to a concentration camp and how they survived.
0: How do you choose your topics? You know, a lot of times
2: they sort of find me or I stumble upon them. You know, in the case of Tombstone, that began several years ago as I wanted to do a book, a biography of Bat Masterson, but that shifted to doing a focus on Dodge City with Bat and Wyatt. Uh, In the case of uh, this book I'm working on now about the World War II pilot, uh, I happened to see an obituary for this fella. Uh, He lived in the state of Washington, and uh, when he died at the age of 93 in 2015, and it mentioned about how he had been illegally incarcerated in Buchenwald and struggled to survive in the concentration camp. And I said, gosh, that's a heck of a story. And I contacted the family and got more information. And so sometimes uh, I sort of like it's accidental. I just stumble upon them. And not every idea turns into a book, but sometimes they do. And it's, it's really exciting when something comes, it comes from maybe just, even just a sentence you read somewhere, and it ends up becoming a book.
0: When you write... Do you, who do you write for? Do you write for yourself in the w- computer or do you write for a mythical audience
2: uh, you know i it's i'm writing for myself in the sense that uh, i'm I'm very involved in in focusing on telling the story and but yes knowing I want that story to be read and 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 enjoyed by an audience. But I'm not thinking about, well, I'm going to write it this way because this is the way they'll enjoy it more. I just want to write the story as best I can. And, you know, if I'm fortunate, there'll be an audience out there that appreciates it and enjoys it. But mostly I just want to – mostly it's just me at a computer saying, look, how can I best tell the story?
0: When you write, does it come easy? Or as some writers have told me, it's like opening a vein and bleeding on a page.
2: I'm very lucky. I I enjoy the writing process, Uh, and I do know writers, just like you said, who find it very, very difficult. Uh, The writing is actually kind of like the reward. The the the, the more difficult part is the research and preparation and organizing. You know, that could on a on a project can even take a couple of years before you, you start writing. So when when I finally have all my ducks in a row and have all the research done and everything organized and ready to go, the writing is the the icing on the cake, it's the more enjoyable part, and I don't struggle with it. I just find that maybe because I'm prepared as, as well as I can, that the writing part, um, I, I enjoy going to my desk and writing every day, but I, I, you're, you're right. I know writers, that for them, it's uh, writing is torture.
0: When you write, do you think it all cin- cinematically? Maybe someday this will be a movie?
2: No. Uh, because I've been in this business long enough to know that that's the exception, not the rule, that something you write ends up... I mean, I have several books that are in different stages of development. I've never had one that's actually been produced and is up is up on a, a screen, either as a feature film or as a cable series or anything like that. So I know if, if you write for that reason, I, to me anyway, I don't think you're going to write as well as you can because you're writing for something that probably won't happen. I mean, the only thing I can control is how I write for a reading or audience and so i want to write for them and tell the story as best i can so that they will enjoy it whatever life the story may have after that whether it becomes a film or a, like i say a, a series of on on, on netflix or, or amazon or something like that i have no control over that there's nothing i can do about it it'll happen or it won't happen
0: it sounds like a good attitude
2: <laughs> that's what i tried it makes like makes the writing life a little bit easier
0: if you weren't writing what would you be doing
2: Oh, I don't know. Uh, I've always been a writer. I mean, I I spent a number of years uh, working in the newspaper business and and magazine writing. So I've always been writing in one form or another. Uh, I've never really had any other kind of gainful employment, at least not in the last 30 years. So (laughs) I'd be in trouble if I wasn't writing.
0: Okay. um, We'll be right back after these messages. And we're back into the home stretch of WIP Sunday with author Tom Clavin, his new book, Tombstone: The Wyatt the Earp Brothers, Doc Holliday, and the Vendetta Ride from Hell. My name's Peter Solomon. Tom, which is more important to you, a good review or a nice royalty check?
2: <laughs> well, that, that's a tough one to answer because. You know, when when you've worked on a book for, let's say, it could be two years, a year and a half, it could be three years, depending on the project, and uh, uh, you have a contract, you, you basically know that you're going to get the rest of your money paid to you, uh, but you you want both things to happen, if possible, to get a good review so that you're, you know, you know people are, are appreciating it or letting you know you did a good job. But, uh, but a royalty check is very important, too, because you've got bills to pay. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, you know, there are people that write books on the side while they have other occupations that are their main level of income. In my case, uh, I live on my book income. So, so uh, good reviews don't pay my mortgage, as wonderful as they are. I do need that royalty check.
0: Now, I've had this happen with other authors I've interviewed, and I wonder if it's ever happened to you. You go into a bookstore, a chain store usually, and you see a book that I interviewed with in the last six weeks is now on the remainder table. Yeah. Books don't have a long life, do they?
2: They don't. Uh, I, I I haven't had the experience of where it's been a matter of a few weeks or even a few months, but I have had the experience of maybe a book of mine that came out two or three or four years ago and I walk into a Barnes & Noble or, or you know an independent bookstore and there it is on the remainder table. And, you know, it, it's happened a few times and, and it's kind of jarring and, and, and disappointing. But, you know, again, I've been in the business for a while. This happens. It's part of the nature of the of the, of the business. And uh, I'm all for whatever extra dollar a bookstore, is, the bookstore can squeeze out of a book. I'm all for it.
0: Yeah, I've walked into some stores where the books are incredibly cheap, so I asked the cashier, "What do you all pay for them?" And the average price I get told is seventeen cents a copy.
2: You know, I think it, the way it breaks down is usually if you take a hardcover book that goes for thirty bucks, which is what many hardcover, brand new hardcovers go for these days, let's just say it's thirty dollars. When a copy sells, the author gets four dollars of that, and then maybe the publisher gets twelve dollars of that, and then you have after that, you have uh, the cost of distribution. What the bookstore gets—that's one of the reasons why uh, you know the business has so been revolutionized by the uh, the ebook, or the electronic book, uh, the Kindle book, and things like that. Because uh, it's 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 re- recalculated the financial aspect of, of book selling. You don't have to pay for warehousing. You don't have to pay for distribution. It's basically the publisher. Uh, and the and the author get a piece get a piece of the action. So uh, the the actual cost of manufacturing a book, I, I don't know what the cost per unit is. Uh, but once everybody uh, gets a piece of the action, it really it really does add up to that thirty dollars.
0: Well, what do you think? Obviously, you think good things about e-books. Excuse me, what was that again? You you like e-books? You think they're a good th- development?
2: Yeah, I mean, on the other, on the on the one hand, they they became an, inevitable. There was no way to stop the tide. And when when they started to become, you know, ten years ago, more prominent and more available, yes, a lot of uh, authors, agents, uh, publishers, retailers uh, were scared because they thought that the whole system was going to come crashing down of how books are sold. But I think we've seen now that there's a big audience out there that still wants to have the actual book in their hands. But there are also people that find e-books very convenient. I do both, you know, especially when I'm traveling. If I'm going to want to bring a few books with me, uh, I'll load them up on my Kindle, so I'm not lugging three, four, five books in a suitcase or a satchel with me on planes. Uh, but, on the other hand when I, when i 'm not traveling and uh, I, I go to my bookstore and, and pe- pick up a book that I want to read, and I enjoy that experience of reading so uh, so the, there is the convenience part of it it 's it's, it's, uh, it's, it's something that and people read books on their phones you know it 's something that we can 't avoid and I think we 've found a way in the, in the in the publishing business that everything could be accommodated. people have their preferences and the, and people are making money from paper books still, and they 're making money from electronic books.
0: Absolutely, and we have a qual- a caller for Tom Clavin, James from West Philadelphia. I need you to be quick, but here we are. Yeah, okay, Peter, uh, Mr.
2: Clavin. Uh, yes, let me say uh, I was—I uh, became interested in the West because I was a huge fan of the great Western writer uh, Louis L'Amour, who I'm sure yes. you probably knew. Yeah, uh, and I uh, was interested. In way. question I have for you is this: in in writing your books about you know the Western stuff, uh, you, have you come across stories of you know? Other people that you didn't write about, particularly African Americans in the, in the West, and if you have, uh, you, I mean, what were in the late 1870s, 80s, what were you know, what is the African American story in in the in the West and in, in the Southwest? If you if you came across any doing doing your research i did there was a there was a, 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 a there was a couple of figures one i talk about in my book Dodge cities his last name was love l o v e and i'm trying to am blocking on his first name now but uh but he was somebody who was a a, a cattle uh, a cowboy uh went on cattle drives uh was a scout for the army and uh if you if you have a chance uh, i i you know, some, some libraries are open, some are not, uh, some bookstores are open, some are not, but if you ever get a chance to, 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 to read or pick up my book, Died City, and you can look in the index, I think his name was Love. Uh, he I, I, deal, I devote a few pages to him because he was an interesting character, and one of the very, 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 very few African-Americans uh, on, on in the West, or at least those ones that, that made it into, into a history. Um, but uh, when I was working on, uh, I think when I was working on Tombstone, I made a, a note to myself that I wanted to find out more about the, uh, the a fellow named Bass Reeves, and uh, he was he was an African American lawman, and and uh, I, I I said, gosh, this guy had such an interesting life. I, uh, maybe he'd be worth a book. However, uh, since then, uh, I, I, I believe there's a book that came out sometime within the past year and his name is Bass Reeves, uh, and it, I don't think it was a major publisher that put it out, but I think it was a very good, smaller publisher, and it's about his life and adventures. So so those are the two that I came across that really I found very interesting, and uh, this, in the case of
0: Bass Reeves, I might have
2: wanted to try and write about him, but uh, somebody else beat me to it. <laughs> okay, well, th- well, thanks a lot. Thank, Thank you, you, James.
0: And you've been listening to WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. Before we go, Tom Clavin, do you have a website?
2: I do. It's a very easy one, TomClaven.com, and people can find about, it, about my books, and I try and put some information about there, about what's going on in the writing world.
0: And I want to say thank you to Tom Clavin. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting history lesson. What can we learn from the lesson, Tom?
2: Well, I think we can learn that sometimes people had to choose sides and that they didn't want to, and the Earp Brothers came down on the side of law and order, and that's what made them, I think, the historical figures we know today.
0: A good lesson for all of us to ponder, especially while we're home alone. Just (laughs) us and COVID-19. Thank you, Tom Clavin. My name's Peter Solomon. Nothing left to say but see you soon. And let's remind folks, they are going to stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sonny Hill. Always interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinions, Sonny's reactions, I'll know I'll be listening. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Be thoughtful about how you're going to deal with Pennsylvania starting to reopen because the life you may save, if not yours, may be somebody you care about. The WIP Time, 7.52.